See, one of the um, things I remember uh, well about my younger years, I'm still very young, don't get me wrong, um, is there's a kind of rite of passage that I think um, every young person, sort of late teens, goes through, which is learning to drive. And there's a myriad of dangers rolled up in learning how to drive, as I'm sure you've experienced if you've been in the car with me uh, or with my brother-in-law, Ashley Watkinson. Um, It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. But I remember one of the things that really, really stuck with me um, was, was this. Put the right fuel in the car. Put the right fuel in the car. And I wasn't told that very many times, but I don't know why. That really, really stuck with me. I thought, it's kind of simple, isn't it? Fuel is fuel. It's petrol, right? So I come to the first time I'm going to fill up my dad's polo. It's the first time. Pull up to the forecourt. Pull up to the petrol station on that momentous first fueling day, which I've been avoiding for a very long time because I was a skint student at that point. And I was faced with an overwhelming choice. I thought it was going to be easy. One pump, in the car, done. But no, there's unleaded, there's premium unleaded, there's diesel, there's bioethanol. And and I'm sitting there thinking, what do I do? I hesitated. Which one did I need? And, and in my ignorance, as a, as a relatively new driver, if I'd, if I'd have just gone with something and put the wrong fuel in the car, I probably wouldn't have known it was the wrong fuel until I'd started the engine and it had um, flooded the system and then it was already too late and the car was damaged. Now, I think, I think life is kind of like that, actually. How do you know if you've chosen the right fuel for your life? How do you know that you have chosen the right motivation? How do you know that you've chosen the right purpose for your life? Is it going to make your life work as it should or is it going to flood the system and cause damage? Now I think we've all seen both in the lives of people that we've met, maybe in our own lives and in the news especially, examples of addiction or examples of ideologies that flood the system, so to speak, and cause real damage. They, they can destroy somebody's life or, or seriously hinder them from being who they're supposed to be. You see, this letter that we're going to look at um, in the next series, Colossians, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in, in a place called Colossae, and they're, they're faced with exactly these kind of questions. What is the right choice for them to make in their lives? They've They've heard and they've received this gospel that we've been talking about. And they heard it through a man named Epaphras. But there was this this other teaching, this other message that was coming in alongside that. And it was saying something different than what they'd heard before. And they needed to know which choice was going to allow them to keep going in the life that they'd chosen. The, The Colossian church, they were anxious, they were confused... They genuinely, like I'm I'm sure many of us here, they wanted to live a life fully pleasing to God in every way. I'm sure there's many of us here that want to do that tonight, and so did they. And the opening of this letter that we're going to be looking at tonight, um, Paul, who actually had never met uh, this church at all or, or been to this area at all, he writes this response, and it's absolutely brimming with the gospel. It is brimming with the fuel that had, that had ignited the life that he talks about in verses 3 to 5. It is full of the gospel. Now, it tells us two things, I think. It tells us what the gospel is, and it also tells us what the gospel 
does. So all I'm going to do tonight, very simply, is just list briefly five things this passage tells us about the gospel. That's it. And I'm going to apply them to us as, as practically as I can. So let's um, look at the end of verse 5. And this, this gives us our, our first point that we're going to look at this evening. The gospel is true. This is what Paul has to say about it. He's talking about their, uh, the love they have for all God's people, the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel. The gospel is true. And it might seem like a, a really simple thing to say, but unless we understand this, we're not going to understand anything else that Paul has to say in the rest of this passage or the rest of this entire letter. The gospel is the true message. Not a true message, the true message. And that might seem obvious, but I think that's actually a, a pretty provocative thing to say in our culture, in the world in which we're living, right? Because I think, I think as a culture, we're by and large very skeptical of a truth as exclusive as that. Someone um, comes in and says, this is the truth, bar none, everything else is not true by comparison, you're going to get some funny looks, right? People say that truth is relative to each his own. What's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you, right? What's true for me is not necessarily true for another person. Nobody can say what is right or wrong, ultimately. And isn't it fairer, right? Isn't it fairer to say that? Can't we just all just get along and realize that we're different? So Christians, what do we do? What do we do when the Bible makes a stark claim like this in verse 5? How do we take that and understand it? And what I want to suggest is, is the view that all truth is relative is one that is maybe itself inconsistent with reality. It's actually not consistent with the way things work. Let me explain what I mean. Just think about that statement for a second, right? There is no single universal truth. No single universal truth. Now, the eagle-eyed among you will be going, hang on, what about that statement, right? There is no single universal truth. Hang on, isn't that statement a statement of universal truth, right? And you'd be correct. See, the argument that there is no universal truth cannot be true on its own terms because it is claiming to make a statement about truth that is universal, right? The argument refutes itself. And thankfully, you don't need to be a, have a PhD to be able to understand that and to see that. It's a logically inconsistent argument. Okay, philosophical stuff aside... I'd argue that it isn't personally satisfying either. Not only is it inconsistent with reality, it's not personally satisfying. Nobody lives that they're, like there aren't truths that mean stuff, that there aren't truths that carry over cultures and, and across people, right? Murder is still wrong. Racism, we feel, is still wrong. Genocide is still wrong. It's not just differences of opinion. There is objective reality. There is right or wrong that we are talking about here. So I'd argue that we can't hide behind, as a culture, that cliche anymore. Hey, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. There are things that are true, and there are things that are not true. And the gospel is is one of those things that is gloriously, I hope we'll see, objectively true. 
And what we've got to do here is, is hard work. This is hard work. We've got to understand what the claims that the gospel is making are and whether we are understanding them, which is what Paul is going to talk about in this letter. We've got to ask which claims about God, reality, human nature, are true and which ones are false. And it's hard weighing these things up, but it's got to be done. We've got to know the truth. Now, I don't want you to think that this is just sort of some modern spin on this passage that I've sort of taken in and flown in here. Think about, think about the world of the Colossians that, that Paul is writing into at the moment. You can bet that the Colossians had plenty of different competing worldviews in their day, right? They had um, secular ones. They had um, pagan worldviews of the Roman Empire. They had uh, the Christian view that, that Epaphras had brought to them with the gospel. They had nationalistic views about what it means to be a Greek um, living under the Roman Empire. You see, they had, they had to come to terms with this new truth that Epaphras had, had brought to them. They had to weigh it up. They had to, to understand it right because it had massive implications for their lives and the way they related to other people. So we need to weigh it up as well. We need to understand the gospel. Have we got it right? But this is a message of truth. It's the message of truth but it's a message of truth. It's good news. It's good news for both believers here and skeptics as well. If you're here tonight and you're kind of checking out the gospel, this is good news for you. And let me, let me tell you why. The gospel is not vague or mystical. It's not some sort of path of meditation that you have to follow. It's not some weird esoteric path that you have to reach a certain stage of enlightenment. It's a clear message. There's information here tonight. There's content. There's... Um, there's a set of propositions that you have to believe that are, if they're true, mean by comparison you have to reject everything else that is not true. So Christian, here tonight, you can know concretely with, with certainty tonight what the truth is. It's not slippery. It's not foggy. It is clear as crystal. When, when Epaphras came to the Colossians with this message. He came with a clear one about Jesus. We heard it when John Piper um, was in, speaking in that clip earlier. It is a clear message. That's what they heard from him in verse 7. And skeptic, you, you can assess the claims of Christianity. You can. You can look at them and assess them thoroughly because they are all really there. They're laid out for you in black and white from the eyewitnesses that actually saw them, from people who interacted with Jesus. They are really there. Hopefully, you can see already what I'm saying is not just from my head. It is from the Bible itself. So come and see for yourself. Skeptics are welcome in this church. Skeptics are welcome amongst Christians because you can know the truth. So yes, the stakes are are very high here. I don't want to lie about that. If the gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel that we're talking about, is really true, then that means a lot of other religions and a lot of other worldviews have got reality very wrong. And I want to be clear about that. But the stakes, though high, are are undeniably clear. This is the message of truth. Will you weigh it up? But that is just the starting point. You see, it goes hand in hand with Paul's next point in this letter. So we've seen that the gospel is the true message. But Paul also tells us in the Colossians that the gospel is also how we grow 
as well. You see, even though the gospel is a a set of concrete propositions about reality, um, Paul also calls it um, a power that bears fruit and increases. The gospel is not just an intellectual thing. It's got to be more than that. It can't be less than that, but it's got to be more than that. It's a power. It bears fruit and it increases. Now, when I think, I think when Paul mentions the word fruit here, he, he has in mind that, that character change. We, you've heard of that phrase, the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about character change that, that comes from having the Holy Spirit as a Christian sort of renew your heart and mind and, and change your character and change your, your attitude about things. But if you look closely down at verse 6, you'll see Paul's making a profound point here. Let, let me read it for you. Verse 6. He's talking about the message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Can you you see what he's saying there? He's saying the gospel is bearing fruit and growing amongst the Colossians just as it did when they first heard it. Now, why, why is that significant? Why should we pause at that thing? I think most people who, who would truly call themselves Christians, most people who would say, yes, I believe the gospel, yes, I've put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would agree that we're saved by grace alone. It's sheer grace. It's only God's mercy that has saved me. But we also think, if we're honest, that we can grow by sheer obedience, right? Sheer, hard-nosed shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone, work. That's how we grow, right? We're saved by the gospel, and, and then we, we sort of advance by hard work. Let me, let me try and explain what I mean. I, I remember um, taking a holiday to Cape Canaveral in America when I was um, younger with my family, and we were lucky enough to see a, a space shuttle launch. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those on TV or on YouTube or something like that. So it's this al- there's this almighty noise and this bang as the shuttle kind of roars up into the atmosphere and it needs these um, booster engines to get it off the launch pad and to break the earth's gravity but after a while after it's sort of broken the earth's atmosphere what happens the the boosters they kind of come off and they fall back down towards earth and then they sort of splash into the sea and the shuttle's free to, to continue with its own momentum under its own power i think a lot of us myself included at times, that's how we treat the gospel, right? The gospel um, is very important, we would agree, um, it, but it's like a booster rocket that sort of gets you off the ground and then falls away, leaving room for our own effort to kind of do the rest of the work until we eventually reach heaven. The gospel boosts us into orbit and then we advance under our own power. But that's not what Paul is saying here. I want you to see that tonight. That's not what Paul is saying The Bible teaches us that we are saved and advanced by the gospel. We're saved and advanced by the gospel. That The fruit of the Christian life that Paul is talking about here comes from it. Now, one of the um, previous pastors here had a way of putting it in in a very American manner. He used to say that the gospel is not just the A and B of the Christian life, right? The gospel is the A to Z, or Z if you're English, um, of the Christian life. See, Paul is telling the Colossians, he's telling us that there is no magic key for unlocking the Christian life after you've been saved. There just isn't. The gospel that saved you and me 
is the same gospel that is, is going to grow you and me. You never graduate from the gospel. You never outgrow it. You never get through it. You never get tired of it. It is going to be the thing that takes you from um, your new birth as a Christian through to your death, through to the new heavens and the new earth. It is going to, that is it. It is the gospel. And maybe you can tell, this is, this is one of the things that has been working its way into my heart as I've been preparing this message because I don't feel like I fully get this yet. The gospel is the thing that advances us. It is such a vital thing to understand about the Christian life. But I feel, maybe like a lot of people here, that I'm still just learning this inch by inch, step by step, as I walk through the Christian life. You might be asking then, okay, the gospel is the way that we grow, but how do you take it? How do you take the gospel and allow it to then bear fruit? How do we advance with the gospel? And actually, thankfully, Paul begins to tell us by a little synonym that he uses for the gospel at the end of verse six. Look down at it if you can see it. Just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and truly understood what? God's grace. That's the synonym that he uses. He calls it God's grace. Gospel growth Growing in the gospel is about truly understanding the grace of God towards you. Now the gospel tells us that we have a hope stored up in heaven for us. You can see that in in verse 5 as Paul is talking to the Colossians, right? This hope in heaven is is, um, waiting for us there like an inheritance. And, And Paul refers to it as an inheritance in verse 12 if you can see that. Now the significance of an inheritance is that you don't earn it, right? An inheritance is something that is stored up for you by somebody else. It's already won for you. And we're going to say a little bit more about that later. But, but the fruit that the Colossians are experiencing, that the hope that they have, comes from a true understanding of the gospel of grace. It's this true understanding of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Their, their treasure, their value, their crown. Right? It's the only way, by the way, to live a wise and a free life. Now let me explain what I, what I mean by that. Um, there's a, a little boy in my English class uh, at school that I have a lot of fondness for. He, he's really talented, he's a great writer, but he absolutely breaks my heart. Because every time that we have um, a test or some way to measure progress, as you do all the time in schools, he will immediately start to cry. The, t- the tears well up. He, he gets really, really stressed and, and he starts to bawl. And whenever I ask him about this, he says that he feels stressed because he doesn't know if he's good enough. Maybe you've come across that kind of attitude before. Maybe you've, maybe you've felt like that before. I just, I just don't know if I'm, I'm good enough. I don't know what the, what the measure is. And my heart breaks. Because all I want to do with this, with this child in my class is share the gospel with him. That's all I want to do. But I can't. And I want to share with him that the, the only thing that will ultimately save him from, from that pressure of, of justifying his young... This, this kid is 10. The only thing that is going to save him from trying to justify his existence like that is the gospel. See, every test for this little boy had become a a referendum on his value. It had become the way in which he measured whether he was good enough or not. For him, it was like going on trial every single time. He was asking himself, have I done enough? 
Have I earned my place? And, and, and like this child, we can be racked with anxiety over these things. Because it's, it's like a, think of it like this, it's like a peg that we hang all of our worth off. And it's, it's not going to hold. It's going to snap. That's why we feel anxious about these things. And it, it can be anything. It doesn't have to be a test. It could be your job. It could be your marriage. It could be your relationships. It could be, it could be your Christian life. It could be anything. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says that as a Christian, your value and my value is stored up in heaven. There is an inheritance for you and I stored up, saved up for us there, guaranteed, untouchable. That is grace. That is grace that we don't deserve. If your value is tied up in anything perishable on earth, it too, by very definition, is going to be perishable. Anything that can be touched or damaged on this earth is going to be unstable. And I think as, as, we, as we go through the Christian life, when we think about the gospel as a gospel of grace, we have to just renew this thought, this inheritance, our value, our crown is stored up in heaven daily and in every single one of our problems. It's like the operating system from which we've got to boot off of in every single situation. So you become a freer person when you do that, I think. You become a person who's less anxiously concerned about justifying yourself and about making the cut. And you're actually free. It's like you can let go of all those things and you're free to serve other people and you're free to love other people. Isn't that, isn't that the kind of life you want to live? And that's the, the kind of life I, I want to live as well. But, but even after listing these kind of three key points of understanding, Paul is still very realistic and reassuring to those of us who are still asking, this is, this is all great, but I don't feel like I get this 100% yet. I understand the gospel is of grace. I understand that it's true. I understand that it's how I grow, but I just don't feel like I'm there 100%. But he tells us, fourth point, that the gospel is a process. Growth in the gospel is a process. Now, Notice that Paul is essentially asking for much the same as he's been thankful for in the first paragraph. When he gets into his second section from verses 9 to 14, he actually asks for what he's been thankful for in the first place, right? He takes these principles that he's laid out in verses 3 to 8, and he shows us how these things are worked out in life. So he asks that the Colossians will be um, filled by God with the knowledge of his will, That just means knowing what God wants and and, um, growing to want what God wants. Um, And that's so that, follow follow the flow of logic here, so that they can live a life worthy of God and pleasing to him, which actually we're given a blueprint for in verses 9 to 12. See how Paul lays that out for us? He's praying, but he's giving us a blueprint. So he says that they, they should be bearing fruit in good works, which you've already talked about, right? Bearing fruit of the gospel. Um, growing in the knowledge of God as we grow in relationship with him, which, again, we've just mentioned. And also being strengthened by his glorious might so that you would endure with patience. Paul's saying to the Colossians, and he's saying to you and me, that we need patience for this. I don't know if you've ever um, been reflecting on on your walk with Christ or anything like that, and and you just get frustrated because you think, I am not where I want to be right now. I want to be somebody who prays more. I want to be somebody who um, has more time for people. I want to be somebody um, who is genuinely willing to sit down and listen to someone rather than just thinking about myself all the time. Right? We've all, we've all been there. But Paul says the gospel is a process. Be patient with it. 
You don't, you don't just get the gospel in one snap instant. It's, um, an oak tree isn't, isn't grown in a single day, isn't it? It takes years and years and years for that seed to grow into an oak. It's a lifelong journey, walking and, and growing in the gospel principles that we've been talking about here. Understanding what God wants, thinking it through, talking it through with people, applying it to your life. It takes time. It takes endurance. It takes patience with yourself and with one another as well. And that's what Paul is telling us here. So if you're a Christian here, please don't lose heart. If, if you're here and you're frustrated and you think, I just wish if I could just be at that, that another level of, of, of holiness or prayerfulness or understanding of the gospel. If you're here, please hear this. You and I are growing daily, hourly, in our understanding of what God is like and what he wants. And, and every worthwhile relationship takes time, doesn't it? If you really want to build a relationship with somebody, if you really want to grow with somebody, you've got to spend time with them. You've got to understand what they want. You've got to understand what motivates them and your motivations become their, uh, their motivations become your motivations. That's what Paul is saying here. It's the same with God in your relationship with Christ. And Paul tells us that, that to help us, we have the power of almighty God. Did you catch that? We need God's power to do this. So remember that the gospel, growth in the gospel is a process. But the last thing I think that, that Paul takes pains to say is, in my opinion, as I've been reading this, perhaps the most astounding, it's the thing that this week has, has just knocked me off my feet. Out of all the points that he makes in this passage, the one that he finishes this section with is that the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is Jesus Christ himself. Now, even though Paul explicitly mentions Jesus by name in verse 13 and 14, he actually starts developing his, his thought back in verse 12. He says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. So he starts developing this thought in verse 12. It's, it's, um, it's one of those blink and you'll miss it kind of moments in the text. I wonder if you caught that, that strange turn of phrase that Paul uses there. Have a look down at verse 12 again. Qualified. He has qualified us. It's odd, isn't it? He's qualified us. Usually when we're talking about um, qualifications, we usually say, I have qualified for something, don't we? So um, I've studied as a doctor and now I have qualified to be a pediatrician or a surgeon or whatever. Or um, I've been a teacher training college and now I have qualified to be a teacher. But we don't say somebody's qualified me to be a teacher or somebody has qualified me to be a doctor. So this tells us we've been qualified for something. The word actually literally means worthied. We have been worthied for something. See, there's a connection, actually, between this word and the one that Paul uses in verse 10. I wonder if you saw it when the passage was being read. That word worthy, living a life worthy of God. You may have looked at that and thought, hang on, isn't there something, a bit of a contradiction here? When you say live a life worthy, haven't you been saying that the gospel is free by grace and not earned? Haven't we been singing about this? Isn't the church about that? How can you say live a life worthy of God? 
Let, let me ask you a question. How do you live a life that is worthy of a gift? How do you live a life that's worthy of a gift? You receive it. Don't you? You receive it. You rest in it. That's how you honor the giver, right? You don't take the gift and say, right, I'm going to live a life worthy of this gift. How much did it cost? I'll give you the money back. That would be outrageous. The person would be very, very cross with you, and quite rightly so. No, you receive the gift, and you say, thank you. You give honor to the giver. So live a life worthy in this context. And when Paul talks about us being worthied for something, it doesn't mean earn God's grace. It doesn't mean that. It means rest in it. It means give thanks for it. That is how you honor the giver. That is how you give God honor. You say to him, this gospel is amazing. That you are sufficient. You are all that I need. You are worthy. But how has he made us worthy? This is the last thing I want to talk about this evening. How has God worthied us to share in this inheritance, to share in this hope that one day we're going to go to heaven and we're going to meet Jesus face to face? Well, look at the final two verses that that I've already read here. Verses 13 and 14. In him, in Jesus. Can you see? A transfer took place. We were in one kingdom or one domain and now we're in, as a Christian, another domain. How do we make the cut? Jesus redeemed us. That is the gospel. It means that a price had to be paid for you and I, a price that we couldn't pay ourselves because we are not worthy. You look deep into your heart And you know that you're not worthy. I I don't have to tell you that. You know that. I know that. Every single time I look at my own heart, I see how far I fall short. Not just of God's standards, but of my own standards. I don't live up to my own standards. I know that I am not worthy. But let me tell you the gospel. Let me tell you the gospel that, that Paul believes. Let me tell you the gospel that the Colossians believed. Jesus was worthy. Jesus came to earth, he lived a worthy life and he took his worthiness and he died on the cross and he gave you and me his own worthiness. That's how you and I are qualified. Jesus takes your unworthiness and you get his worthiness. That's how you receive that hope laid up for you in heaven. That is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And the, and the right response, um, Paul tells us to this, is, is thanks, thankfulness, joy, living a, living a worthy life in thanks for this gift in the light of the, the, the glorious grace that God has shown us. And, and this is the message that Paul opens his letter with. This is the message that we're going to see expounded on and and expanded on through this whole series that we're going to be um, preaching through. And the very next uh, section of verses is probably one of the most amazing pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible. Please, please come back next week to hear more about this worthy son of God who took on your unworthiness and gave you, if you believe in him, his very own worthiness. 
This is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the true message, the message out of which we grow, the message of grace. Let's pray. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my shame, that you would bear my cross. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have taken our shame, that you've taken all of our unworthiness on you and that you have given us your very own worthiness. Lord, please help us as as we um, look at these verses. Please help us as we reflect on this, as we come to your Lord's table. Help us to realize what the gospel really is. Help us to realize that it's the way that we grow. Lord, may we be a church, may we be a people that show that fruit of gospel growth. May we show that fruit of the Spirit, thankfulness for what Christ has done. In Jesus' name, amen.